Welcome to the Chalk Talk Gym podcast, where we explore insights into healthcare that help uncover new opportunities for growth and success. I'm your host, Jim Jordan. Welcome to today's episode of Chalk Talk Gym. Our guest today is Charlotte Mather. She has over three decades of nursing experience, and she's dedicated her life to transforming patient care, specifically in the hospice and palliative care area. Her journey starts from a neonatal nurse and ends up today as a vice president of nursing operations, showcasing her relentless pursuit of quality end-of-life care. Today, we explore the forefront of healthcare innovation, discussing predictive analytics, the evolution of hospice care, and the impact of technology on patient and family experience. Charlotte's insights shed light on the critical balance of art and science in nursing and the challenges of healthcare delivery and the future of hospice care. So grab your headphones and be prepared to be enlightened by how compassion and innovation and technology are reshaping healthcare. So Charlotte, please give the audience and myself a little bit more about your background. Hospice line of service been a nurse for over 30 years and practiced in a number of different environments, large academic hospitals, hospice or end-of-life care. Now, I saw palliative care in there too. Do you consider that the same mm-hmm. or can you maybe define the differences for our audience so they understand it? Yeah. So palliative care is a little bit different than hospice. It's that space. I want quality of life, but I'm not at end of life yet, but I'm just making different decisions about my health care and what I want to do with maybe chronic disease management and what that looks like. So focused on quality. And then when you get to hospice care, you've really made a decision that we're not going to be curative anymore, but we're going to quality of life, not going to hasten death, not going to get there quickly, but we're going to give you quality. Now, does palliative care, that definition, does that have doctors act a little differently with pain meds and different things like that? Does it? Can you share that a little bit? Yes, it does have them act a little bit different in how they treat symptoms. So palliative care, you might still be going down a curative path in a bigger picture, where in hospice, you're not curative anymore, but you are going to palliate symptoms or manage symptoms that give you quality. So that's a great definition because I was talking to some of my older relatives in preparation yes. of this. And their definition of, in their minds, of palliative care is you're still on the journey to hospice where that is not the case. You could be curative. Is It could be the case. It could not be the case. Right. Exactly. You're kind of in this in-between space and it allows you the opportunity to explore. Okay. Very good. So did you start your career out in this space? No, funny story. I started my career out as a neonatal nurse in an intensive care unit in a children's hospital. So babies. That's and then my youngest said, daughter was, went down that path. Yes. Yeah. And I think the writing was on the wall for me because I remember this was 30 years ago. So we still took our nursing boards on paper. They still mailed you the results like in the U.S. mail and you went to the mailbox and to check, did I pass? And I remember getting that notification in the mail that said, you're an RN, you pass their boards. I was so excited to be able to go to work that night, work to the night shift and be able to sign RN after my name and, you know, be fully in my profession, what I had worked for. And I was assigned an infant that night. 
that was born without a brain, but had enough of a brain stem that still was able to breathe and still able to have a heartbeat. But we were nearing end of life. And I remember my supervisor giving me my assignment for that night and just said, okay, Charlotte, um, here's the goal. We don't want this baby to die alone. The baby's going to die tonight. And so that was my job to take care of that baby. Parents weren't in the story. And just that was such a profound first assignment for me as a, a brand new RN. And I think impacted my career over time, no matter where my clinical focus was until I arrived in doing hospice and end of life care full time. What an interesting pathway. What a sad event. I know my daughters had some of those experiences. And I remember being in a cath lab often, and you'd walk in sometimes and the place is silent. And you'd say, what's going on? It's like, we're cathing or we're working on an infant. It, it certainly is a difficult and heartbreaking thing. So right. maybe tell me a little bit more about your organization and where you fit in it, because your organization covers quite a continuum. It does cover quite a continuum. And I think that's what's great about our organization in that post-acute care space, knowing people's journeys aren't in a linear fashion. You can go from home health to palliative, back to home health, to hospice, personal care services. And so I think it's a great opportunity for our organization to be innovative in that space to serve patients and communities. So I'm focused on the nursing care of the hospice piece of our organization. Obviously, I'm passionate about nursing care. Large part of healthcare is delivered by nurses, and we want our patients and our communities to have the best possible care. In my case, best end of life experience, whatever that looks like to the patient, their family, their chosen family, it's going to be different for each person. And so we try to have multiple ways we support the patient and their families in the journey and the end of life. So as you moved up the nursing into the administration and leadership, what issues are you dealing with or what contradictions in your goals do you have that might have been different when you were just treating a patient? Yeah, I think when I was a staff nurse at the bedside, my focus was on delivering patient care. And I think now I'm supporting the organization so that we have the right nurses, good qualified nurses, making sure they have what they need to do the job in the other clinical professions as well, so that they can support the patient to have the best experience. So it's a different view. It's a different perspective. But at the end of the day, there's a patient in the story and that's everybody's goal. But how do we get to the patient? So in my position, how do I have the right workforce to get to the patient? What other tools do we have in our toolbox? to get to the patient. So recently in the last year and a half-ish, we've started using some predictive analytics software that runs in the back of our EMR that's evidence-based and it is super slick. There's some AI in it, but it's pretty accurate in predicting the patient's end of life timeframe. So it has eight different risk categories and at the highest risk category, it's telling me these patients are going to die in the next seven to 12 days. And it's got over 90% accuracy rate. So it's that intersection of art and science. So as a nurse leader, we can work with our clinical teams to say, okay, we need to deliver the right care at the right time. And this patient is in that time frame. So how do we support the patient and the family? How do we educate them about what symptom they may experience next and how we're going to support them and address that symptom? 
some want a family member at the bedside or a friend, and they might live on the other side of the country, we can share with them in confidence, with a level of confidence that now's the time. They should get on the plane and come. This is the time you want people here. Maybe it's a specific religious or cultural ritual that's important to them. Now's the time. And so it really helps us meet the patient's needs, right care, right time. It also allows us to use a very valuable resource, our workforce, to get them in the right place at the right time for the patient. I think that's an amazing thing for our audience to think about because we think about artificial intelligence analytics is more Mm -hmm. focused on the business aspects, have the right drugs there because this is going to go on, maybe the right catheters, whatever it is. But I think what's incredibly important is technology is also helping us make it a more human experience to have people and family members there. Because I myself have traveled to a bedside, a hospice, thinking that the relative or whatever was going to pass. And it ended up being a lot longer. And, you know, you're away from work and you're in a hotel or whatever, and it becomes unaffordable at some point in time. So it becomes quite an issue. Now, when we we hear nursing turnover all the time and the high rates of turnover, is hospice more or less? When we look at our rates, we're on par with healthcare as a whole. And I think we're still coming out of the pandemic and the impact on the nursing workforce. So I don't think what we're experiencing in our organization or, you know, post-acute care space is different than what our acute care partners are seeing as well. It's a concern for healthcare in general. How do we have the right people to take care of patients in the right locations? Nursing is the largest segment of the healthcare workforce and little bias. I think we're really important. So. Well, having uh, family members who are nurses absolutely agree with that. And I think that the reason for me asking that is we have had a yeah. few family members who are hospice nurses that find it to be a very special event and a privilege. Yeah. And so as I've noticed, other family members that are nursing in other fields, they tend to move around more than the hospice folks. So that's why I was asking that question to see that if there yeah. was a change there. So what's changed in hospice in the past five years in terms of the tools and the business models that you have available to you? Has anything changed radically or is it still basically the experience that maybe many people have had in the past? Yeah, I think people are talking about hospice care more than they have in the past and understanding what a a valuable benefit that is Mm -hmm. in our country. I think there's maybe some misunderstanding about what hospice is. It's not this doom and gloom. It's a normal part of of one's journey and we can make it the best possible end of life experience. So I think there's some misconceptions about what it is or maybe what it's not. And I do think that the technology that we see now is very different than even five years ago. And I think that has a huge impact on better quality care for our patients. We're able to communicate better with from clinician to clinician about a patient because we're sharing an electronic medical record versus paper that I've got to get to someone else versus I can get a nurse on the phone quickly and they can see everything about the patient to help the patient and the family Mm -hmm. with whatever the current situation is. So I recently had a, about a year ago, a dear friend of mine had a a parent that passed in the last week of their life, they went into hospice. And one of the interesting things that this person said to me is this person was obviously in critical condition for weeks prior to that. And so being at home and helping out, keeping the drugs, keeping the schedule. So they were so focused on the house management. They actually said they did not realize until they went to hospice when everyone else is taking care of that, they actually just got to be there for their parent. 
just to have conversation, talk about family, right. you know, and have some actually made some memories. Now, who pays for that? Is this a regular insurance? Is Medicare pay for hospice? Yeah, it's a Medicare benefit. So if you're you know, a Medicare beneficiary, you have access to hospice services. It's a covered benefit. Commercial payers also, if you're not yet to Medicare, commercial payers, most of them also have hospice benefits. So it is pretty readily available and covered. It's rare that it's not. That's great. So when you look at your organization, what challenges are you facing with products and services as you're trying to align to what the future of healthcare is? I think like any organization, right? How do we provide better quality care at a lower cost? And that's always our challenge. Our focus is on the patients. We want to have the best quality care. Hospice is largely covered by Medicare. Our our largest payer is Medicare. And so living on Medicare rates is sometimes challenging. And so I think that's some of our challenge is knowing our biggest payer is Medicare, which, you know, is a very conservative payment rate, trying to be very nice about that. But, you know, making sure the patient has what they need, having the workforce that the patient needs, all comes back to the patient. But I think those are some huge constraints right now. Well, I think there's some quality measurements. I don't know if this space has quality measurements like he does and thought they do. Okay. So there's an aspect of the hospice experiences I've had. I call it like a nice living room with a bed in it where you can go and have a very comfortable environment and family members can move in and out in a very natural way. And, mm-hmm. and arguably in some cases more natural than if someone had a bed in a living room at a home or something like that. But historically, yeah. reimbursement doesn't cover those kinds of things. They're very quick to give you you know, surgical robotic equipment or a catheter or something. But these things are not usually, they're in the overhead rate, but not very generous about it. So how do you balance that part of it with the technical part of it? Yeah. So in hospice, there are four different levels of care that are covered, eligibility for each one, just like inpatient, outpatient, and the acute care world. And so there's routine level of care, which means we deliver hospice care in the home for the patient. Part of the hospice benefits also, like if you need DME or equipment, that's part of the benefit. Your medications that while you are on hospice are covered, that's part of the benefit. And we can do that in the home. There is also a it's called continuous care, level of care. And that is, there's some symptoms maybe that need to be managed and we need a nurse on site for up to like eight hours a day for nursing services as part of that for eight hours a day in the home mm-hmm. just to help manage there's something going on. There's also then a GIP level of care, general inpatient level of care. And so there is like acute management that needs to happen for this patient. Maybe they've got pain that's unresolved and we need to relook at our plan of care and treat this symptom or any other number of symptoms that require 24-hour nursing care. And that's done in a location that has RNs on site 24 hours. We have a few locations where we are actually in a hospital and have a unit within the hospital that's ours. So we'll deliver hospice care in that setting. And then maybe the patient will go back home once we've managed those symptoms, and they're where they need to be, and they no longer meet the inpatient criteria. And then there's also a respite level of care. We know that caregiving can be burdensome at times Mm -hmm. on the family member, and they just, they need a break. And so we will work for 
a place in the community for the patient for five days to give that caregiver a break and take care of that patient. So those are the four different levels of care that CMS looks at around eligibility and their payment models. So when you look at the circle of hospice patients that expire, what percent are actually in a inpatient hospice facility? Those are probably the lowest percentage. By and large, most will be in the home. I think that might surprise a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Or even like in an assisted living facility or a skilled nursing facility, we go into those facilities and we provide hospice care for their patients who are, are receiving that benefit. So it's not just home. If you have a loved one who is at their end of life, they meet the hospice eligibility requirements, but they reside in a skilled nursing facility or an assisted living facility, we can still go in and provide their hospice services to them. So when you look at your career, can you switch topics because you went from this pathway of starting out babies in here? Can you just tell us about a time when you had to quickly adapt and and shift your strategy? Tell us a little bit about that time. Oh, my goodness. I think that's what nurses do best. I'll think of an example, but I think, you know, nurses are super creative individuals and just give us a few tools and we'll figure it out. I think, okay, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole and you can cut this if you want. But I think nurses are the largest segment of healthcare. I think we're creative, innovative individuals. We know patients. We're the most trusted profession. I think we need to have a bigger voice at the healthcare tables solving problems. Mm-hmm. Just from an overall national policy perspective, I think we've got a good insight and can add to the dialogue. And as you've moved into management, has there been a something that pops into your head as something that was requiring quick adaptation? Yeah, I think every day, right? When we started in pandemic, that required quick adaptation. We went from one day thinking, okay, the pandemic's coming. Let's start preparing. This is what we're seeing, the information we're getting. And I think like within a week's time frame, I remember it just totally shifted. It was just incredible. In one week's time, we went from normal operations to, okay, do we have enough PPE? What are the protocols? How are we testing our employees to know that their well-being is in place? How do we provide care in a patient's home? Hospice was still going into homes during the pandemic. And so just in one time frame, we had to shift our thinking, our processes, who was going to work virtually, who in our organization could work virtually, who needed to still be going out to homes to take care of patients. And so those models shifted. I think also... From a technology perspective, being able to do virtual interactions with patients and families that before then, you know, we didn't have that technology in healthcare by and large. So that was some positive disruption that I think came out of the pandemic across all of healthcare, just the embracement of, okay, we can can connect for some things virtually, not everything, but there's some things that have remained. So. How do you keep current in all the changes that are going on in your field? Is there specific magazines or people you follow? Because every, everyone loves to take this opportunity to see where Alita gets their information from. Yeah. So lifelong learner here. So constantly scouring, just like normal healthcare news that you get in your mail, get hospice news in my email every day. Beckers is a great, just general, what's going on in healthcare. But then the professional organizations. So our hospice professional organizations are great sources of information that we engage with. 
American Organization of Nurse Leaders. That's specific for me for a profession. I'm a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives. So from a leadership perspective, that's a great organization to be engaged with around what's current. And then finally, I'm a Robert Wood Johnson Executive Nurse Fellow. And so I've got colleagues across the country in all aspects of healthcare that it's just a phone call away and allows you to connect. Yeah. Yeah. So, so far in your journey, what is the biggest lesson that you've learned? I think the biggest lesson I've learned is that you can't discount the heart. And what I mean by that is we work with people every day. And so sometimes you can think a decision is logical and objective and very cut and dry. But there's people involved in the story. And so you have to understand people and their emotion and their heart and their whys. I think one of the best things we can do as parents and grandparents is to make sure our wishes are written down because it does cause quite a debate. And even with those documents, you still have those kinds of issues. As you look out 10 years from now, what do you see as the biggest opportunity or threat in your profession? Mm -hmm. The biggest opportunity in my profession in 10 years, and we're starting to take steps in this direction, but I think we need to look at healthcare roles. And so what do we need to do with the nursing role to best leverage the different levels of education within nursing? So how am I working towards or performing my highest level of education and training and experience? I think we don't leverage that enough. So interesting. So I have a website that follows healthcare business models called Healthcare mm-hmm. Data Center. So instead of .com, it's .center. And I just finished an analysis on the physician shortages that we have today and what mm-hmm. we're going to have tomorrow. And that yeah. our nurse practitioners and our physician assistants, that industry can react to putting people out, educating them, getting them to work quicker than doctors can. Yeah. It's a 15-year cycle. And in doing that analysis and looking at some of the surveys that are out there, it is shocking how a lot of nurses will say, I was educated for more and they won't let me do more. And I think to your point, it's going to be very interesting because I think the shortage is going to perturb that a little bit that maybe, I don't want to say it's a medical union mentality saying nurses can't do this thing, but I think that the practicality of the shortage is going to elevate. And I could tell you that I have four daughters and my wife and I, we all prefer meeting with the PAs so many times or the nurse practitioners just because they have a little more time, they go a little more deeper Mm -hmm. and they ask these moments. Right. I think that's interesting insight. Going back to, you know, you can't discount the heart. The other challenge that we see is how much paperwork both physicians and nurses (laughs) are doing and how little of their time they actually spend doing the thing that they wanted to do. Is there any activities you all have going on to try to improve that? Yeah, I think I'm going to answer that at a hundred thousand foot level first and then drill down into it. But just from a generalization standpoint from nursing, that's a huge dissatisfier for nurses around, listen, I want to take care of the patients. I don't want to spend a lot of my day looking for supplies, things I need to do my job or the rigors of documentation, especially in the the EMR. And it's, you know, it can cause burnout. I think we've seen that in some physician studies as well around just the burden of the documentation. And so it's finding that balance of, we do have to give an accounting of the care that we're delivering from a quality perspective. There's the legal piece of it, but how can we get to that 
with less clicks or an easier way? Or how do we optimize what we're doing so that the majority of our time is with the patients and not on some of these other tasks? Yeah, I think we've spent the first 25 years of our electronic health record trying to figure what should be in there and how to do it. I think what we've left out in that is what is the workflow of the nurses and the doctors and does this documentation fit that? And I do appreciate that in the early days when you don't know what's important, you're going to have a person of high judgment and education involved in Mm -hmm. helping sort through that. But I think at this point in time, Mm -hmm. we should be in a place that's a little different. And I go to my dermatologists make a little bit more money than most, so they have a little more funding. But I've noticed in the past few years that my dermatologist has actually hired people to follow mm-hmm. the doctors and nurses around to just keep the electronic record updated. And right. it's changed their lives. It's, they're actually seeing more patients in a day. They're actually having deeper conversations. And this person's listening, you know, right. so it's a very intriguing thing. And, you know, most specialties can't afford that at this point in time, but hopefully we can move in that direction. What's the biggest threat that you see? as it relates to what you're doing in the next few years? I'm going to go back to workforce. We've got to have the right workforce. We have to have trained, qualified individuals in a variety of roles to serve our patients. So not just nurses, but all of the roles add up to the team surrounding the patient. I think that's at risk in healthcare in general that we just have to keep our eye on. And I think that I was talking to someone several months back who runs a a long-term care nursing Mm -hmm. facility. And their challenge is that they're paying a lot of money to get contractors in for the people that they can't, right? So there's a a schism there because someone's making a lot more money. There's no regulation around how much those contracting organizations can charge, which I think personally needs to be looked into. (laughs) And then nurses and techs will drive by McDonald's and say, I can make more serving hamburger than I can actually taking care of the patient. And I think there needs to be sort of a a reckoning from that perspective, particularly if you're looking for the talent, because I think that nurses and doctors are some of the most intelligent people we have in our economy, right? So clearly they can go do other things very easily and probably even make more money. But the common theme from everyone I've ever met is they started out caring about patients and wanting to help people. And Mm -hmm. that's a little, little different world. Is Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience on this space? I don't think so. I think, you know, hospice care is this safe poly. We're invited into sacred moments with patients and families. And so there's anyone out there who's interested in coming over to our sector of healthcare delivery. I would love to engage with them and talk with them. And I'm always interested in talking with students as well as they're exploring different areas of healthcare they might be interested in. So very passionate about hospice care. That's what I want everyone to know. Now, if I recall, because I interviewed another executive several months back, but if I recall, your company has a very solid website with all the employment opportunities. Do you know the website off the top of your head and maybe share some of the positions that people should look for? Yeah, it's AccentCare, all one word, dot com. And there are a variety of opportunities. There's clinical opportunities, home health hospice, personal care services. There are office opportunities like non-clinical business, finance. So we're a large organization. We have lots of opportunities. It's a great place to work. I'm going to put my plug in. I will comment because I was on your website previously is not only you can search the roles around the country, but you can also search Mm -hmm. it by geographic location. And I I think that's one of the better done websites that I've seen. So I just want to make sure people are aware of that. Well, very good. 
So where do you see technology changing in hospice care? Yeah, I think having utilized this new predictive analytics software, it's called Muse by Metalogics. It's their software it runs in the back of our EMR. I think that continued development is on the horizon. They've done some just amazing work with being able to predict end of life care. I would really be interested to see what they do in the future just around prior to end of life, like that palliative care space that we were talking about with people with chronic ongoing health conditions? What can they do around some analytics and predictions and algorithms and in that space? So I think that type of integration in the future is going to become much more common and help us deliver better care for our patients. And the predictive aspect of it, when people hear predictive, sometimes they see the negative side of that. But the predictive aspect of it is about being ready. And when you look at COVID, Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've tightened up, although I I wouldn't say it's perfect, is there was no coordination between public health and individual hospitals, right? And today, you can go and look up any particular hospital and see how many people are coming in. I think there's like nine different categories that they're tracking. And I think that's the good part about the system. There's nothing wrong with being overprepared. Yeah, it's used for good. It's, you know, again, right care at the right time, helping the patients, helping the families, in knowing where they're at in their end of life journey, it's good. I know it can sound really scary. It's a new word, artificial intelligence, predictive analytics, but there's a good side to that. And that's what we focus on is how do we help the patient? How do we help the family? It's about their journey and how we can be invited in. Yeah, thank you. Well, very good. Well, thank you for sharing today and spending some time with us. Thank you for having us. All right, take care. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Chalk Talk Gym podcast. For resources, show notes, and ways to get in touch, visit us at chalktalkgym.com.